You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. So, you know, we we do, like a lot of other vendors, we do find lots of new ransomware families, but this one in particular uh, stood out to us for a number of reasons. We thought it seemed to be uh, relatively sophisticated, and so we thought it was it was something to watch and, and, and something we should maybe publish about. That's Dick O'Brien. He's a principal editor with Symantec's Threat Intelligence Research Team. The research we're discussing today is titled Nobaris. Technical analysis shows sophistication of new Rust-based ransomware. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Well, the the information that you published here is in uh, is in two parts, and you start off here going through the anatomy of a specific attack. It, it's it's quite an interesting narrative here. Can we walk through it together? What what exactly happened to the organization that found themselves uh, the target of this group? Yeah, it's it's an interesting attack uh, in terms of I mean. It demonstrates that whoever was behind it, now we don't know whether it was the ransomware authors themselves or an affiliate, really knew their way around um, a network and, and knew how to deploy this ransomware. And also they were, um, I guess, uh, quite confident in, in themselves because um, in this case, the organization seemed to have discovered the attack and made efforts to to, to kick them off the network. And uh, they came back with a, another 
strain of the ransomware and managed to succeed. And usually when an attack is discovered, that's it. The attackers disappear and, and they, they try something else. So how they got onto the network is a little bit unclear. We saw the first signs of suspicious activity seem to date from uh, November 3rd. And it seemed to kind of come from a remote machine on the network. So it could be a case of it was a machine that we didn't ourselves have visibility on because maybe our software wasn't running on it or, or else that they, the attackers may have compromised uh, or they may have added a new machine uh, to the domain and then used that uh, to, to start the attack. And so once they were in the network, how did they go about uh, spreading, spreading around and, and also maintaining persistence? They used a lot of the tools and techniques that we'd see um, targeted ransomware attackers used. Um, there's a number of steps that they all need to take. Uh, it would, you know, escalating privileges in order to, to gain admin privileges, stealing credentials, and then moving laterally across the network. One of the steps uh, that we saw them take was, was they managed to um, disable the remote admin feature, and that effectively took away the safeguards uh, against past the hash attacks. They also used PowerShell via PSXEC, disable Windows Defender, um, and they didn't disable it as such. They just modified it in a way that it was disabled, so that they added um, uh, executable files to the exclusion list and um, then used uh, PSExec again to, de to deploy the ransomware across the network. At what point did the targeted organization detect that something was going on? I believe it was during the ransomware deployment stage. And, and the reason I say this is because um, they had to recompile a new version of the ransomware. So the, it was obviously once they started rolling out the ransomware itself that, that they noticed uh, that it was... Um, the attack was underway. You know, the, the ransomware itself kind of uh, does a fair bit of work. So there may have been um, a, a kind of window for the organization to, to notice the attack and close it down before the ransomware could finish doing its work. Is there any sense for how long they were in the network before they actually started encrypting files? Yeah, I mean, it's, let me see, the first, first time we we're sure of malicious activity was November 3rd. And the actual encryption, I believe, occurred on uh, November 18th, so nearly two weeks, which is, you know, a, a, a long time to be to be on a network. And you know, I, we might get to it later, but they obviously they made the most of that time on the network because they seem to have done a pretty extensive reconnaissance. They knew an awful lot about the organization they were attacking. Well, let's dig into that. How were they going about that reconnaissance, and what sort of information were they gathering? Obviously, I mean, you know, we, we don't have visibility into every single thing that they did. But when we analyzed the ransomware sample that was used against the victim, it had a number of interesting features. And that was is that not only were administrative credentials for uh, that organization baked into the sample, but it also had an application kill list. Uh, now, an application kill list is not unusual. They, they, these are, this is a list of applications that they, they want to shut down before encryption launches. But it seemed to be unique to that organization. So they had gone about and gathered, they realized what applications were running in that environment, and they added it to the kill list. So uh, the, the ransomware was kind of highly tailored to, to the victim. 
Well, let's dig into some of the technical details of this particular ransomware operator. One of the things that you all noted was that uh, they were doing their development in Rust. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the things that caught our attention. Yeah, I, I gather Rust is a really hot programming language right now. It's quite popular. Um, I think one of the reasons it's quite popular is that People believe that it can be used to create kind of quite clean, uh, efficient applications. And I guess there is an obvious appeal uh, to ransomware uh, operators with that because uh, speed is of the essence in ransomware attacks. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the average piece of ransomware has a lot of work to do. You know, it has to like try and delete the backups. It might have to exfiltrate data. And then it has to encrypt a whole bunch of files on each computer. So uh, it's quite labor intensive. And I guess the quicker it can accomplish those tasks, the better. And maybe the ransomware developer, I guess, like any other software developer, said, well, let's see uh, what Rust has to offer and, and whether it gives us any advantages. Yeah, I guess not surprising that they would be Using the the latest greatest uh, hot tools. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, ransomware is very much a marketplace like anything else, and and you see uh, people try to experiment with new techniques uh, and new technologies. Well, let's walk through the technical details together. the The information that you all published has a an extensive step by step description here. Can you take us through what exactly uh, happens here? Yeah, I mean. It does a, a lot of things before it starts encrypting. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it removes the shadow copies. And then it issues a command to collect a, a universal identifier from the infected machine. And that's something we can maybe talk a bit, little bit more about later, because I think it's one of the more interesting features of this ransomware. It then attempts to mount hidden partitions and then it sort of uh, it also then attempts to propagate itself via network shares and and it looks for available shares by using the net use command. And then it also the aforementioned administrative credentials that is baked into the ransomware are maybe leveraged then to use to, to propagate via network shares. The next step uh, it takes is to uh, kill processes on the machine. There's a kind of a generic list of processes that it will, will try and kill, but it will also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, kill a custom list that are specific to that organization. Then it begins encryption. Uh, like most ransomware, it doesn't try and encrypt everything on the hard drive. It excludes certain directories and file names. And that's really just to kind of speed up the encryption process to make sure that they're just encrypting valuable data as opposed to, you know, stuff that you know, the, the user doesn't really care about. You mentioned uh, it was interesting the way it was working with uh, UUIDs. What, what caught your eye there? Yes, this was quite an interesting feature because it has an access has a unique ID for each infection, and this creates an access token that creates a unique address for the victim to visit in order to negotiate with the attackers or pay the ransom. And this is something I haven't seen before anyway. I'm not, I'm not saying for sure that nobody else has done it, but it's certainly something unique that we've seen that it means that only somebody with access to the infected computer can uh, get the address to visit to negotiate with the attackers. And mm. we think that this has been caused by 
the fact that there's been some level of frustration ex- uh, expressed uh, by ransomware attackers in recent times that outsiders, neither the victim or, or their representative, are kind of crashing these ransomware negotiations uh, and disrupting mm-hmm. them. <laughs> and it could be reporters, indeed, um, you know, looking in on ransomware negotiations and reporting on them. And what usually happens is that some somebody might upload a sample of the ransomware to Virus Total or something like that, and the uh, negotiate the, the Tor site that's used for negotiation is 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 in that sample, and then it becomes public information, and anybody who has the address can visit it. So this kind of creates a an address that is unique to the victim and is only accessible to the victim as well. But yeah, there's a little bit of an innovation. It also suggests that people who developed this ransomware knew what they were doing and are maybe kind of experienced operators in the space knew that this was a problem to be addressed and this was their way of dealing with it. Do you have any, any indications of who might be behind this? No. Uh, you know, no, not in terms of like you know, identities, Um we have uh, been informed by third parties that it has been advertised on Russian-speaking cybercrime forums. So there's, you know, there's some suggestion there that the authors are Russian-speaking, but you know that's not, you know, hard and fast uh, evidence or anything like that. But the fact that you know it's been advertised in the cybercrime community and the fact that, that there's a, a fair bit of sophistication behind it, I'd say. You know, it isn't the, these people's first rodeo, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's an interesting aspect of this. I mean, it sounds to me like um, these this particular group is on the, the higher level of sophistication in your estimation? Definitely so. I think it's one to watch. Now, whether they gain traction or not or, or is another question. You know, there's, there's a number of factors, I, I believe, that would, would kind of decree the success of ransomware. But, uh, you know, if you want to look at, if you're looking at up and coming ransomware families, this is one I would definitely be watching in the coming months. Are there any specific recommendations here based on the information you gathered for organizations to best protect themselves against this group? I think the advice in regard to Noberis would, would be kind of the same with regard to all of the other, you know, high level ransomware threats. And that is that you need to adopt defense in depth. Because uh, you know you can't rely on any single uh, strategy because the, these these guys are you know it's human operated ransomware. They you know if they find themselves stymied at, at one point, they will usually uh, attempt a different tactic. So you really need to uh, you really need to kind of consider your protection across the attack chain. In terms of vectors, how they get onto networks, I would say that. A lot of the more frequently seen threats we've seen are being spread in collaboration with botnets. TrickBot, Emotet is back again, is, is also being involved in ransomware, ISID, botnets like that. You know, they have kind of the reach to get into organizations. You know, they're, they're able to, you know, they, they have a, a high level of spamming uh, infrastructure behind them. And what they seem to do is that they have now have a close relationship with ransomware organizations and they sell off the choicest victims uh, to ransomware attackers who then kind of proceed to uh, elaborate, to unfurl the attack further. So that's one major infection vector. The other uh, one we've seen a lot of is uh, exploitation of vulnerabilities in public-facing applications. 
It's not done by all ransomware groups, but a select few uh, seem to specialize in it. But that's, your, I guess, your point of entry. Then once they're on the network, I think I would advise any organization to kind of familiarize themselves with the techniques that ransomware groups use to steal credentials, to move across the network, and, and escalate privileges. So you will see the use of some malicious tools, but there's an awful lot of living off the land type activity or uh, abuse of legitimate tools. We've seen an awful lot of remote access or remote desktop tools being deployed in ransomware attacks, for example. So with that in mind, keep a close eye on what applications are running on your network. And uh, if there's applications that uh, you do not expect to see running on your network or are not authorized to run on your network, like uh, remote access programs, uh, you need to to uh, kick them off immediately. I would advise close monitoring of any PowerShell usage. Also, uh, implement multi-factor authentication for admin privileges and things like that. You know, and then you you kind of you get onto your your security software stage, and I'm not even going to give you I'm not going to give the hard sell on on our products. <laughs> But obviously, you know, a, a good AV solution, um, a, a good EDR solution are, 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 are critical in terms of um, being able to identify and remediate uh, ransomware attacks. Our thanks to Dick O'Brien from Symantec for joining us. The research is titled Nobaris. Technical analysis shows sophistication of new Rust-based ransomware. We'll have a link in the show notes. And now a word from our sponsor, SixSense. SixSense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With SixSense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixSense, visit SixSense.com. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Falecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.